Well, good morning, and it's great to see you again. We're glad you're joining us, whether it's on Facebook or on YouTube. Uh, as always, you know, we'd love to have you uh, interact and respond by, uh, putting, by just typing in the chat there. And, and again, just like we've done the last couple of weeks, Keith and I are going to be doing this together. Keith is actually going to take the lead right. on this you're one today. You're the supporting role this and time. And I am in the supporting I'm excited role. excited so, for it. Yeah. What do you got yeah. for us today, Keith? Man, I, first of all, I just want to say our tech team is doing an awesome job putting out <laughs> fires this morning. <laughs> A lot and of fun. Super proud of everybody. So uh, it's been really cool. Actually, there's we have like we're one short in the tech booth back there. Um, but it's just been so special to see everybody making it work. So I just appreciate our tech team. And uh, yeah, you guys are doing a great job. So I had a friend growing up that always struggled with the idea of God as judge. In fact, I used to say that he saw God primarily as judge while I saw God primarily as a loving father. In fact, I'd love to hear from you all who are listening here this morning. What was your view of God growing up? Did you tend to see him as a loving father or did you tend to see him as a judge? I think we as a society tend to differentiate between those two, Mm -hmm. right? I think either you view God as a judge or we tend to view God as a loving father. In fact, for our culture today, man, the biggest sin, the, the most offensive thing that you can do, culturally speaking today, I think, is to call something sin that someone else is thoroughly enjoying, mm. right? Like, man, if I take something that makes you happy, is bringing you happiness, and I call that thing sin, then in a way, you could say, I've committed cultural blasphemy, And in a way, that makes God, according to our society at least, one of the biggest sinners, if you think about it in those terms. A loving father we're okay with, but a judge, not so much. Well, what I'd like you to consider this morning is that we actually want a God who is judge. Weird Mother's Day passage, I know, but we want a God who is judge. In fact, I would go so far as to say that a God who judges gives life meaning. In other words, because God is judge, your life matters. To do so, we'll look at a man in scripture whose life got Mm -hmm. so bad that he really couldn't see how it was worth living. Yeah, and but before we do that, we're going to have Gary Steele come on, and he's going to read our scripture passage today from Job chapter 31. I'd like to read from... Job 31, verses 16 through 40. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth, I reared them as a father would. And from my birth, I guided the widow I have not seen, if I have not seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments and their hearts did not bless me or warming them with the fleece from my sheep. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint for I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. If I have put my trust in gold, 
or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained, if I have disregarded, if I regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them the kiss of homage, then those would be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high. If I had rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against their life. If those of my household have never said, who has not been filled with Job's meat, but no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. If I have concealed my sin, as people do, by hiding guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I will wear it on my shoulder. I will put it on like a crown. I will give, it, give him the account of every step. I will present it to him as to a ruler. If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured the yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let the briars come up instead of wheat and the stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gary. You know, in case you're not familiar with the story, Job suffers immense tragedy. In one day, he loses all of his children, seven sons and three daughters, when a house collapses on them. A series of messengers come to him and tell him that he's also lost all of his wealth and all of his livestock. And afterwards, he suffers a skin disease all over his body. The Bible says that from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, he's covered in painful sores. His wife, on top of all of this, in response to what's happening to him, he tells him, she tells him to curse God and die. And eventually we'll learn that his friends and his community all assume that this has happened because he deserves it, because he must have some secret sin in his life that he's hiding. So he's lost his children, he's lost his wealth, he's lost his health, he's lost his re reputation, he's lost his kind of his marriage, the, at least the respect of his wife, and he's lost his place in his community. So just three chapters into the book of Job, not surprisingly, Job, Job is inconsolably grieving his entire existence. He believes that God made a mistake by allowing him to be born. He wishes that his mother had miscarried, he says that. And uh, he's haunted by this question, is life worth living? And we see a little bit of that question come up in Job chapter 3, verses 20 to 22. He says, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. So obviously, 
Uh, Job is wrestling with the same questions of meaning that many people throughout history have always sure. wrestled with. And that's one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it's, it's brutally honest mm. about those questions that we have in life. And it doesn't always provide answers for us either, at least not right. ones that people are always uh, satisfied with. But it doesn't ignore the fact that people experience a lot of devastation and hurt and harm in this life. Yeah. Um, but, but what you're saying is, is that belief in a God who judges in all of that uh, makes it, means that my life matters. Your life matters. Right? Yeah. My life matters. Okay, so how is that? I want you right. to make that connection for me. Let's do that. All right. So in order to get to that, we have to say a few things first about this idea that God is judge. First, we need to understand that God's justice and judgment is not the opposite of love. Hmm. It's actually an act of love, you could say. It's Tim Keller who I first heard articulate that a God who never gets angry isn't a God who loves. It's a God who doesn't care. Mm. Right? So, man, think about it. A loving father gets angry when his children get hurt, if someone hurts his children. Uh, lovers get angry at unfaithfulness and betrayal. And a just judge gets angry at injustice. If you want a God that never gets angry... You don't want a God of love. You want a God of indifference. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. And, uh, and, and I guess we could say that the love of God actually makes him a good judge, right? Yeah, or, or maybe right. you could say it the other way around, that the justice of God makes him a good lover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the second thing we need to see is that the Jewish understanding of a judge is not a bad thing, but a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, if you read the book of Genesis, for example... Every time that God's referred to as judge, first of all, God's not referring to himself as judge in it, but the people in Genesis are referring to God as judge Mm -hmm. every time that that word is used. And they're asking for God to judge on their behalf or appealing to the fact that God is judge. Mm -hmm. So... It's not something that they're afraid of. It's something that they want. It's something that they yearn for. In Exodus 18, Moses appoints judges to serve the people. Judges are seen as a good thing in Scripture. In Psalms, God is praised for his role as a judge. So take Psalm 76, verses 7 to to 9, for example. It is you alone who are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounced judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. So far, all of that kind of sounds uh, foreboding and and maybe negative to us. It says, when you, God, rose up to judge to save all the afflicted of the land. They tie it in with salvation, right? Look at Isaiah 33, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, for the Lord is our lawgiver, for the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Yeah. Now, this whole conversation here reminds me, my my wife and I read a book quite a while ago that was recently made into a movie. It's called Just Mercy. And the book is written and and the movie is based on this story uh, by a lawyer named Brian Stevenson who started an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative. And what he does in his law practice is he defends people who are on death row, you know, mm. people who are, who are wrongly accused yeah. and, uh, and, or, or sometimes he defends, uh, kids who are tried as adults and, and sometimes right. are given capital punishment or given, uh, punishments that are way harsher than, than what they should 
do. Now, the book and the, and the movie has lots of different stories, but the main story that goes through it is the story of a guy named Walter McMillan, who was, uh, I guess you could say, was framed. He was, it was intentional, it was wrong, it was illegal. He was, he was framed for the murder of a young white girl, um, and I believe this was back in the 80s. Well, when you go through wow. all of the facts of the case, it's very clear that they didn't, they didn't have a case, um, that, that all of the evidence was trumped up, they coerced the main witness, and, and he later recanted, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's just, it really is an incredible miscarriage of justice. Wow. But, but what they did was, they could see that the, that the girl's family wanted justice so badly that they, they just wanted to find someone to do it, and even though they, they knew that Walter McMillan was not the one that committed the murder, they just wanted them to fe- be satisfied about it. And of course, um, in, uh, in Alabama at the time, uh, and maybe even you know, for, for some people today, um, black people are expendable. And, uh, and so they just tried him, wrongfully accused him, and he spent six years on death row for a crime that, that he didn't commit. Well, later he was exonerated for that. Uh, and, and so, but all of that happened because the, the girl's family had this deep sense that they needed justice to be done. And, and not only that, but if you were in Walter McMillan or in his family's shoes, you would be desperate also for a real and a fair-minded judge. It's, you just absolutely desperate for it. Yeah, definitely. So, Just Mercy, mm-hmm. that's a, it's a, you mentioned it was a book and a movie. Yeah. Good book? Good movie? Yeah, it's great. You'd recommend yeah, it? I highly recommend okay, it, yeah. Cool. I actually, I looked it up, 165 people on death row have been exonerated. Mm-hmm. 165 people. Yeah. I think it, you had mentioned maybe slightly more than that. 100, 167 since 1963. Yeah. And, uh, and one out of nine... Uh, people on death row have been exonerated by further evidence, DNA evidence or things wow. like that. That's a, that's a high percentage. Yeah, over, over half of them, more than half of them were black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine being robbed of life like that. Yeah. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the one thing that Job pleads for the most is a judge. Man, if you were to read the book of Job, mm-hmm. The one thing, time and time again, that Job is asking for is a judge. He doesn't want a savior. He doesn't want a loving father. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's asking for a judge. He wants someone to hear his case, to make the wrong right, and to acknowledge the inequity, the unfairness, the imbalance of it all. Look what he says from our reading in Job 31, verses 35 to 37. I love that how this is stated. He says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. So, okay, so I hope that you're getting by this time that we all want a righteous judge. Um, and, and as we go further, I think what we want to do is, is we want to start to make a little bit more connection here about why a righteous judge means that life is worth living. And Keith is going to get us started yeah, with that. Yeah, there's actually three things, and they're all essential. First of all, your life is worth living because God judges that all human life is good. Okay, so you say all human life is good. So all does that mean that good. everybody is righteous? Does that mean that everyone is, is morally upright? Sure, we're not saying that all humans do good. Okay. <laughs> you know, Jesus himself says, you know, why do you call me good? Only God is good, mm-hmm. right? right? But we are saying that human life is valuable. 
It's sacred. So Job knows this, and it forms his expectation. It's why he can even think to ask that God would be a judge and hear his case. In, uh, in verses 13 to 15, he says, If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? So, so Job is saying, man, if you're male, if you're female, if you're a master, if you're a servant, and it doesn't matter who your mom is, God made each one of them. And therefore, all humans have equal worth and deserve to be treated fairly in the eyes of God. But there are some, uh, even today, who would consider humanity to be a cancer or a plague on the earth. And you might have heard language like that before. I think of Travis Reeder. He's a director of the Master of Bioethics degree program at the Berman Institute of Bioethics. And he actually submitted an article to NBC News titled, Science Proves Kids Are Bad for the Earth. Morality Suggests We Stop Having Them. Mm. And there are those today who, throughout history, consider certain ethnic groups to be untouchable or undesirable. In fact, I remember in 2017, CBS News tweeted uh, that Iceland is on pace to virtually eliminate Down syndrome through abortion. Mm. And, uh, and what I found out after kind of researching that tweet a little bit is that 100% of those who tested positive for Down syndrome while in the womb uh, were aborted. 100% of them. You know, clearly a value statement on the life of those with Down syndrome. Yeah, they judge that, that their life doesn't matter, right? You know, and that, and that kind of reminds me again of you know, th- something that happened just recently here in Georgia where there was a, a black mm. man was out for a run and a couple of white men thought that he was up to no good. They, they had sort of, um, you know, prejudged, I guess, yeah, sure. that, uh, that he had done something wrong and so they grabbed their guns to go confront him and when he resisted, they ended up fatally shooting him. And, and yeah. I don't know all of the facts of the case. I mean, right. all of that Still stuff will out. come in, but it sure seems that, uh, that, that it was racially motivated. Um, or at least there was some some bias there that that yeah. they had, and uh, that they placed a certain value on him because he was black. But but what was even more baffling about that is is the men were never even brought into custody. Not for two months yeah. they weren't. Wow. And and it wasn't until it wasn't until there was this outcry um, on social media and some other things when when people found out about it that they finally that they finally. Um, brought him in, yeah. or brought, brought the two men in, and now they're being tried uh, for, for murder. Um, and, and what's interesting to me is, is that it's events like this that, that seem to connect justice to value, right? Yeah. If, we, if you, yeah, if you d- deny someone justice, you would deny them value. Right. That's like the Black Lives Matter right. movement, right? Even the name itself shows this correlation between justice, we want justice, and human value, right. and this idea that our lives matter, so right. give us justice, right. right? But regardless of how people view humanity, man, Scripture tells us that on the day that creation was made, on the day of our creation, in fact, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. That doesn't happen. God, God makes things, and he says it was good. God makes mankind, and he says it was very good. We're the apex of creation. But because of who God is, this is not a subjective statement, but an objective one. Humanity is profoundly and essentially good. And it's not, that's not a moral statement, as we mm-hmm. said before, but it's a value statement. Every life is made in the image of God and has intrinsic and equal worth 
And we know that because God judges it to be true. Right. Number two, your life is worth living because God judges that actions matter. Mm-hmm. You know, as I was preparing this sermon, it dawned on me that one of the downsides to the notion of karma and reincarnation is the lack of justice. Mm-hmm. And by the way, according to a Pew Research study, up to 29% of those claiming to be Christians believe in the possibility of reincarnation. It's an attractive idea in some ways. On the surface, that philosophy sounds like it means that everyone will get what they deserve. But the truth is, they actually won't be aware of it, right? So let's say you live the worst conceivable life possible, and let's say you're reincarnated as a dung beetle. Mm. Well, in my mind, a dung beetle probably doesn't mind that he's a dung beetle. Have you talked to dung beetles? Or, I mean, how do you, how do you know this? That's a, that's a good question. It's just a, it's an assumption that I'm making here. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. Well, not only that, but, but there's something else about reincarnation that's always been uh, kind of fascinating for me is that it tends to have been very uh, bad for people who are in terrible circumstances. So, for instance, if being born into a lower caste and, yeah. and getting leprosy um, was the result of something that you did in a in previous life. life. If you're a part of, an, uh, uh, of a higher caste, then I think it, it would dampen your compassion for them because you're saying, well, they're just getting what they deserve. You don't want to get in the way of justice. Right, and if you, and if you try to go in there and make their situation better, then they're not learning their lesson. You're, you're sort of robbing them of the opportunity uh, for justice, and that's why I think the caste system has created yeah. and, and enabled, maintained um, a great deal of, of injustice throughout history. It's not a philosophical history. caricature but it's something that we've seen played out. Yeah, it's attractive to us because there, there seems to be a, a sort of immediate sense of justice. And I think when, when Americans talk about karma, we talk about someone who steals a car and then crashes and <laughs> dies, into an right? Accident, yes. and, and so they think, it's a, they think it's this immediate sort of thing. That's how we think about karma, sure. which is not really the doctrine. But what we see there is that this is not, it doesn't work. And it's also not, uh, it's not compatible with Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, I'm sure you can guess where we're going with this. Actions have to matter in order for life to be worth living. See, early Jews were distraught by the idea that the wicked could live this long and prosperous life and end up in the grave just like everyone else. If you ever read scripture, especially the Old Testament, that kind of motif or theme comes up time and time again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also see it in Job chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. He wrestles with this concept of death as an equalizer. He says, Speaking of the grave, there the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. So the wicked, the weary, the captive, the slave, the, the great, the small, right? They're all at rest, and that's what makes the reader uncomfortable, and it makes Job wish that he had never been born. He wants his actions to matter. He wants it all to mean something. Yeah, and it reminds me also of Ecclesiastes. You see this theme running all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm. For instance, you can see it in, uh, in chapter 9. Um, he, he writes this, All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Yeah. So you have this, this underdeveloped concept of the afterlife. And as a result, you see these early Jews struggling 
with this idea, mm-hmm. right? Without a judge, without a final judgment, without final justice, no matter how good creation is, no matter how valuable human life is, we might still have a desire for what I do to matter, right? And so scripture affirms that one day, finally, everyone will give an account and will be judged with fairness. And Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, he says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. Now that, now that might be surprising to a lot of people because I think a lot of people think about Jesus not as judge. We think God's the judge, God right, the Father. Right, right. Yep. And, and Jesus is loving. In fact, he saves us from God's judgment. Yep. And, and I think there are a lot of people who even would, would say that if, uh, that, that if you have faith in Jesus, then there won't be any judgment for you, right? Right. Okay, so yeah, how but, do you But how Jesus do makes it that? clear, right, that he is, I mean, he, he talks about it on numerous occasions, not just here. He talks about separating the goats from the sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for Jesus, judgment is something that he uh, will do. Yeah. If there is no judgment, then our decisions are ultimately inconsequential and meaningless. Actually, I found this author named Damon Linker, who is a senior correspondent at The Week, who is described as Jew, uh, he describes himself as a Jewish atheist Catholic. <laughs> I don't know how yeah, that I'm works. not sure All either. Right. <laughs> but he wrote this article, and he's, in the article, he's calling for more honest atheism. Okay. And in it, he says this. He says, if atheism is true, it is far from being good news. Learning that we're alone in the universe, that no one hears or answers our prayers, that humanity is entirely the product of random events, that we have no more intrinsic dignity than non-human and even non-animate clumps of matter, that we face certain annihilation and death, that our sufferings are ultimately pointless, that our lives and loves do not at all matter in a larger sense, that those who commit horrific evils and elude human punishment get away with their crimes scot-free, all of this and much more, he says, is utterly tragic. Wow, that's a, that's a bold statement. It's thorough, it's poignant, yeah, it's yeah. bold. But that's what we're talking about. A God who ju- doesn't judge takes meaning away from life. Mm-hmm. But with judgment, and every word counts, every breath counts, every good act, every good thought, every good intention, it all counts for something eternal. How we treat other people made in the image of God matters. The judgment of God brings meaning to life. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the third reason that God, as judge, makes life worth living. And this one, I think, is most essential. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I think this is essential, and it's right there on your screen, on the screen. Someday, all things will be made right. Now, one of the <clears throat> most important aspects of God's judgment is not just that, that bad people get punished, but that people who suffered in this life will be restored. And so when God judges, he doesn't just judge against people, he also judges for some people. Wow. Um, and in fact, that's why in Romans 8.8, 8, the Apostle Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And what he means is, is that eternity, what we will experience in eternity, will make the, the suffering that we experience in this life pale in comparison, that we will actually just kind of forget about it because yeah. it'll seem so trivial. Right, which can be, man, I love that passage. That's mm-hmm. great that you brought that in. Yeah. I think even still we kind of wrestle with that concept mm-hmm. still. Yeah. Wrestle to, it's hard for us to believe. Mm-hmm. You know? When God speaks to Job at the end of the book, that's exactly what takes place. God comes as judge, but this judge is one who restores and redeems. Job's friends who have been accusing him of sin and their relationship is 
severely damaged. They've been blaming him for his circumstances, and they're rebuked by God for their sin mm-hmm. in how they handled that situation. And they're told to ask Job to offer sacrifices on their behalf. That's mm-hmm. the way that they'll be forgiven. So even their relationship is restored. Job's wealth is restored. And Job is given seven sons and three daughters. And it's a picture for us of God's desire to make all things right. And that's a picture that we see in Revelation, where we're told that the church, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Goes on to say, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So we have this picture. God makes everything new to such an extent that there is no occasion for sadness. Now, earlier in the passage in Revelation, it talks about the church, the bride, coming to be with Jesus, the bridegroom. And so I, I want you to see something profound here that as we've been talking, one of the things that we said was that Jesus is the judge of our life. We also have to recognize that Jesus pays the penalty for that judgment, for that sin. And it's also Jesus here in Revelation who is the reward of our life. He's yeah. all three. Well, that's really interesting, but I, can, but I can imagine that that brings up some questions for people, okay? For instance, what about people who have never heard of Jesus? Okay, that's, a, that's kind of the age-old question for people. What does justice look like for them? What does justice look like for them? Um, also, what about a mother who's a Christian, loves her son very, very much, uh, but her son, for maybe she, he's hurt by the church, maybe some kind of abuse or something like that, and because of that, he just can't seem to to find faith anywhere, and mm. uh, and you know maybe he passes away um, without without knowing Christ. What happens to him? And then when mom, uh, if you know, presumably if she goes to eternity with Christ, is she gonna just forget no about more him? Tears, you no know, those more are crying. those are all questions that 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 people uh, that people ask about God's judgment. But I think one of the reasons that a lot of people really question God's judgment has a lot to do with the way Christians, uh, some Christians perceive judgment or how they, how they articulate judgment. It, it's almost like they have this perverse pleasure in seeing people get what they want. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who has lived a bad life, this pleasure of, of telling people that they're going to hell or being happy about people getting what they deserved. And, and, and I think what that does is it causes a lot of people to say, uh, bottom line, how can I trust the judgment of God? If this is true. Wow. Yeah, yeah. The, the truth is, I think, I do think that Christianity has good and reasonable, thoughtful, pastoral answers to these questions. We shouldn't be afraid of them, church. And, uh, and the church has thoughtfully wrestled with and responded to these concerns for as long as the church has been around. I want to encourage you to know that the early church had these same questions too <laughs> and wrestled with them as well. Jesus tells us to love God with our whole mind. And I think asking those questions is part of that. You know, we're, we're being loving to God. We're being faithful when we appreciate that God is big enough to handle questions like these. Uh, so we can talk about it more in Commons Conversations. Mm-hmm. Actually, are you going to be there today? I'll be there, yeah. So Pastor Corey's going to be there in Commons Conversations. We'll do a short Q&A, put you on the hot seat, ask you all these questions about my sermon. Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, but I want to say two things on the matter. The first is this. Take ownership for how you respond to God. You know, we have questions about the fate of a lot of people that aren't us, Mm -hmm. and they're good questions to ask, and they're compassionate for us to concern ourselves with, but I do want to encourage you personally, in the end, according to Scripture, you will sit before the judge, you will give an account for your life, presumably alone. So don't deny God 
or resist God simply because you're concerned about those that do. Rather, man, you can, you can trust God and be concerned for those that don't at the same time. Yeah. You know, welcome to the struggle of the church. Right. That's, we experience that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is this. Know that when you see God, it will change everything. Which is a, that's a, that's a big statement and, uh, and maybe it seems unfair at first. So I want to flesh it out a little bit. Job says something fascinating after God appears and speaks to him. Here's Job's response, because God invites Job to respond. And so Job answers God, and he says, You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So Job's quoting God, and he's saying, okay, here's my answer. My eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Sorry, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job had heard of God but he had never seen him before. And somehow seeing God face to face changed everything. Seeing God, that's a doctrine called the beatific vision, a concept that modern Christianity has tended to neglect, especially in some of the circles that I've been in. Mm -hmm. This idea that seeing God's beauty, seeing his glory on the day of resurrection will mean an indescribable unity with God. Beatific vision means uh, happy vision or blessed vision or to be made blessed through seeing God. And we experience a, a unity and a divine joy like nothing we could ever imagine. The ancient people had this longing and this expectation for this. So Moses, if you remember, he asks God to, he asks to see God face to face and At the point of him asking God for that, he had already seen God in the burning bush. He had already seen God in this this pillar of fire and this pillar of cloud. He had already seen God on Mount Sinai where he was given the law. And he has this, Moses has this really special relationship with God where he gets to see him in ways that none of the other Israelites do. None of the other world does. And he still longs for more. And he still says, God, show me your face. I want to see your face. Job has this experience. Paul in the New Testament speaks of a day when we will see God face to face. Here's the passage I love the most. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Mm-hmm. For John, the reason that we're like Christ is because we see Christ face to face, seeing God face to face on the day of resurrection will change us. In, an, in a way that we can't fathom, but in a way that the ancients longed for. And I think we have to learn to get back to that appreciation. Our ears have heard of God, but one day our eyes will see him and that will change everything for us. So I know we're just barely scratching the surface on that concept, but I do want to encourage you. There are lots of complicated questions about judgment, and there are lots of good answers, but those are the two I would start with. Number one, take ownership of how you respond, and number two, know on the day of judgment that you will see God and everything will change. Even if we don't have all of our questions answered on this side of heaven, there is one thing that the Bible is clear about. God is good. He's perfect. He's loving. He's just. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's the only one that's qualified to judge, right? He's righteous, he's pure, he's good, he's all-powerful, 
He's all-knowing. He's the only one that we want to judge. And that's part of God's answer to Job too. And in fact, he practically invites Job to be judged for a day and see how it goes. You know, Job doesn't even know what's going on in the house next door to him. Yeah. Like Job, God is the only one qualified to judge. As judge, God judges that human life is good, that our actions matter, and that one day everything will be made right again. That means that you matter. Man, you know, we were talking about uh, the death penalty earlier, and you had mentioned, uh, we had mentioned that over half of those that have been exonerated were uh, black. Mm -hmm. And you and I, and previously we were talking about this, and you had also mentioned those with mental disabilities Mm -hmm. um, that were also exonerated, also on death row. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, man, no matter who you are, no matter what hand you were dealt, no matter what you struggle with, no matter the circumstances of your birth, even no matter the length of your life, no matter the depths of your suffering, and you can imagine we're talking about any single human life that's ever been in existence Mm -hmm. before, and some of them have been incredibly tragic and maybe unspeakably tragic. God says that your life is good, that your life is valuable, that your actions matter, and that someday everything will be made right. So the judgment of God makes it possible for us to say that every life is worth living. Every life is worth living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm reminded as we talk here this morning that on the throne sits Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. On the throne sits humankind, human nature, that our nature has been elevated to such a degree that when the angels worship Christ on the throne 24-7, they bow down to someone that's fully divine but also fully human. And, uh, And so here we are in the flesh, God, made in your image, and you judge as the one who knows as the one who has objective truth, God, you judged that human life is very good. And so every life matters. And God, you, as Jesus tells us, number the hairs on our head. And one day, every careless, every empty word will be held accountable for. And so God, every action Every breath, every moment of our lives matters and has some sort of eternal impact. And God, you also tell us that one day, somehow, everything will be made right. Even the most unspeakable pain. God, you're going to make it right. And as we said, Lord, you are the only one that we would trust in that position. So God, I I pray that you would bless us this morning, all those who are listening. And my prayer, Lord, is that the truth that was spoken here this morning would permeate our hearts and our minds and our souls and that we would live in it as often as possible, that we would live in the truth that we've heard today. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.